Okay, well, first of all, I want to say thank you very much for inviting me back to come and uh, give these three lectures. Uh, I've got everything written down word for word, but I don't want to, to read it because I'm of the belief that paper is not a good conductor of heat. Uh, and, and I want to speak these things out and also just put in things uh, on the side. I've been asked to speak by the committee on walking in the footsteps of John Wesley's successors. And so I thought, well, let's start, first of all, with John Wesley. And it just so happens on Saturday I had a pile of books I wanted to get rid of and took them into a second-hand bookshop. And as I walked in through the door, this was, was on the floor. And uh, I, I said, how much for this? He said, 75 pound. I said, I'm a poor preacher. He said, I've heard you on the web. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I got it for 20 pounds. And uh, I'm, I'm quite impressed with that. And so that, uh, I had to ring my wife, first of all, to see if I could buy it. She said, where are you going to put it? I said, that's not the uh, thing you should be asking, but I bought it anyway. <laughs> this is John Wesley, and it's a, it's a typical stance of, of John Wesley. Do you know, this man, he, uh, he spoke seven languages. Uh, he wrote over 200 books. He edited another 100. He was a double professor at Oxford University in Lincoln College. He was a professor of Greek and of logic. And yet he was never more at home than doing what I've just shown you, preaching Christ with, with the ordinary people of life, people who couldn't even probably put two sentences together. In fact, John Wesley was so proficient in Greek that he found it a lot easier to quote the Bible in Greek than in English. And this is the kind of man that, uh, that God used to set this country alight. And we spoke about him last time when we looked at lessons to learn from 18th century evangelists, then we went on to the 19th and then the 20th century. But what happened when he died? Who were his successors? And that's what I've been asked to speak about. And where do I start? Well, I want to start with my grandfather. My grandfather worked on the railway. He was a lineman on the track between Blackburn and Darwin. He was the worst man for the job because he was a worrier. And once when he was foreman, because the foreman was off sick, my father said he didn't sleep for a fortnight, worried that if a train came off, he'd be in trouble. He was that kind of man. He was working class, he was a labor voter, and he was a primitive Methodist. And in 1932, the primitive Methodists amalgamated with the Wesleyan Methodists and formed the Methodist Church as it now is today. The Wesleyan Church in the 1930s was middle class, clergy run, and Tory in its politics. My grandfather said around the meal table to his wife and family, if you think that I'm going to sit under some autocratic, conservative, middle-class vicar, minister, you can forget it. And so he withdrew his membership from the Primitive Methodist Church and the Methodist Church, and he went down to a mission hall down the road in Blackburn called Bethesda Chapel. While he was there, Gypsy Smith came to Blackburn and preached and my grandmother, his, his wife, was converted. While at that mission, in his mid-teens, my father was then converted. And just over four decades later, it was there that I was converted. And so indirectly, I have a lot to thank God for, for the amalgamation of the primitive Methodists and, and the Wesleyan Methodists, because it was there that I came to Christ. But who were the primitive Methodists? Who were these people who were meant to be the successors of John Wesley? 
Well, John Wesley died in 1791. And after he died, many, many people claimed to be the successor of John Wesley. I was pastor in South Wales for, for a number of years. And I used to find it quite amusing as a young minister at the, the vying that went on among ministers as to who was the greatest friend of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Oh, I spoke to him once every month. Oh, he phoned me once a fortnight. <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of thing that was going on. And uh, who really was his greatest friend? We don't know. Who really were the true successors of John Wesley? I want to speak about three groups. I could have picked on many, but I want to speak on three interesting groups. Number one, the primitive Methodists. Number two, the Bible Christians. You've probably heard of the Bible Christians through Billy Bray. Uh, I've read his biography several times, and I said to myself, thank the Lord he wasn't in my congregation. <laughs> what an interesting man he was, but we'll, we'll look at him later. And then thirdly, the independent Methodists. And you know something, of all the Methodist groups that fractured after the death of John Wesley, only the independent Methodists are still here. A most fascinating group of people. You may say, this is all boring, this is all history. Believe me, it's, it's very, very relevant. And during these past 12 months, I've been reading and reading and reading, soaking myself in, in the history of, of, of the primitive Methodists. Not only that, I've actually been to the centers of primitive Methodism, and the Bible Christians, and also the independent Methodists. So I've actually been down to Cornwall for you. There's a little box at the door as you go out, <laughs> just to cover my petrol expenses. But I went all the way down there to see the center of, of the Bible Christians, and what a move of the Spirit that was when it took place. But uh, one man actually lent me his PhD thesis on the relationship between Hugh Bourne and William Clowes, who were the founders of the Primitive Methodists. And believe me, what an eye-opener that was. I mean, most PhD theses I've read, I've understood the name and the title, and that's it. <laughs> this was most fascinating to see what was going on between the founders of a denomination that walked in the footsteps of, of John Wesley. And at one level, nothing's changed, but at one level, everything has changed. When John Wesley was coming to the end of his life, he acknowledged that Methodism was dying. He knew that Methodism was, was virtually finished and burnt out. And uh, one of the last pictures we have of John Wesley is in Chester. We have several accounts of it, but he was speaking in Chester, and, and after he'd had a public meeting, he called together the leaders of, of, of the Methodist circuits in those areas. We actually have his words to them. Fellow laborers, Wherever there is an open door, enter in and preach the gospel. If there be two or three under a hedge or a tree, preach the gospel. Go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the men, the halt and the blind. And after you've done that, you'll have this to say, like the servant in the gospel, Lord, it is done. Thou hast commanded and yet there is room. And then this is what happened next. All who were there said this. He then lifted up his slender hands, almost like in the picture, a common stance of John Wesley. He lifted his hands, and as a man in his late 80s with tears rolling down his face, he said, brethren, yet there is room. And this is the way the primitive Methodists did. And when the primitive Methodists eventually started, they remembered that statement, this is the way the primitive Methodists did. And when they were looking for a title, they said, we want to be those primitive Methodists. 
When John Wesley died, he died uh, in City Road in, in London. If you go down to Bunhill Fields, the most interesting burial ground, people like Isaac Watts, John Gill, John Bunyan, Daniel Defoe, Samuel Stennett, some great people are buried there. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan. Over the road is where John Wesley is buried, and he, uh, he very kindly allowed Thomas Oliver, the man who wrote The God of Abraham Press, to be buried in the, same, in the same grave. That's love for you, isn't it? <laughs> yes. When he died, who was the real successor to John Wesley? John Wesley wanted John Fletcher of Maidley to be his successor, but the trouble is Maidley died before him. So who was his successor? What I find quite interesting is this. There was a man from Lancashire called William Bramwell. And William Bramwell was really the true successor to John Wesley, but you've probably never heard of him. He was born in 1759 and died in 1818. You say, where was he born? How about this? When I read this, I, I just put my book down and, and was deeply moved. He was born four miles from the chapel that I now pastor. And a Lancashire man heard John Wesley preach. He was converted and, and became a Methodist local preacher. But there, and I have people from my fellowship who actually live in, in Ellswick. And so I'm often driving through there maybe once or twice a fortnight. This man, as a Methodist local preacher, got down on his knees and said, Lord, I want more than just preaching the gospel. I want to preach the gospel with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Would you please give me a double portion of the Holy Spirit? And there in that little village, you blink and you're through it. That man was endued with power by the Holy Spirit long before the charismatic movement came onto the scene, long before Pentecostals was ever thought of, and that man moved in the Spirit of God. And wherever he went... This is no exaggeration. You can read a wonderful biography of him, a very large tome, but a small volume by a man called Herbert McGonagall. used to be at the, uh, the college, the Church of Nazarene. Wherever this man went, hundreds came into the kingdom of God. When William Booth heard of this man, he was so impressed. And by the way, Booth was born after he died. But wherever he went, he kept hearing of this man's converts and running into them. When he and Catherine had their first son, what did they call him? William Bramwell Booth. After William Bramwell, the man who stood in the footsteps of John Wesley. As I say, when John Wesley died, Methodism fractured into many groups. We talk about Heinz 57. Well, Heinz 57 was there. You know, back at the, uh, the end of the 1700s, there were the Quaker Methodists, the Arminian Methodists, the Arminian Methodists believed that the Methodists had lost their way and, and were doing more to hinder the gospel than preach the gospel. There were the Calvinistic Methodists. I love this one. The Magic Methodists. <laughs> they, they met in Cheshire in woods. Uh, it's, it's slightly kind of uh, mm, strange, isn't it, really? They were open to the Holy Spirit moving, but they were called magic because it was a little bit strange in those days. The New Connection Methodists, the Christian Revivalists, the Free Gospelers, the Kilimites, I love this, the Kirkgate Screamers. <laughs> and then the Tent Methodists. The Tent Methodists started just after the, the death of John Wesley, and, and they said, well, if he went out, we've got to go out. And, and these Tent Methodists got together, and they bought two tents that could seat 500 apiece, but seat had no seat, you had to stand. 
And, and they reckon that by 1819, within 20 years of being founded, they had reached out to 90,000 people in this country. Sad to say, in 1832, they folded up in more ways than one, and that was the end of the Tenth Methodists. Of all these different groups of Methodists who were all saying, we are the true successors of John Wesley, the primitive Methodists were the largest of, of all those groups. And you know, the reason why primitive Methodism came into being is because the Methodist church could not handle their enthusiasm. And the philosophy of the Methodist church in those days was, if in doubt, cast out. And, and you found a group of men and women who became alive in the gospel and alive in the Holy Spirit and who were passionate to reach out. And the Methodist church said, ooh, 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 steady on. And then we don't like this. So we're going to put you outside of our doors. It's sad to say, often church history is written by, technically speaking, the winners. Just as secular history is written by the winners. But the reason they've won is because they've executed everyone else. And, and, and sometimes I feel the real story of church history is, is not written by the mainline denominations. It's written by those who've been put out in the mainline denominations and who've done a work for God. And I say to myself, what would have happened to the Methodist church if they'd embraced these people instead of throwing them out? Two men started the primitive Methodist church, Hugh Bourne and, and William Clowes, and I've got, uh, I've got pictures of them here. You can come have a look a little later on. And uh, if you want to summarize primitive Methodism in one sentence, here it is how two men became a community of 220,000 souls is one of the romances of modern religious history. We've all heard of John Wesley. When John Wesley died, he left behind 72,000 Methodists. We all go, awesome. When Hugh Bourne died, he left behind 105,000 primitive Methodists. And how come you never heard of him? Hugh Bourne and William Clowes. By 1907, ten primitive Methodists were actually members of Parliament in Westminster, and many of them were leaders of the trade unions. Hence the reason why many trade union meetings were called chapels, because they were held in primitive Methodist chapels. And so what I want to do is, is just very, very quickly, in the uh, two hours that I've been given by the committee, to uh, just fly through the primitive Methodists and then learn some great lessons from them. It all starts with Hugh Bourne. Hugh Bourne was born in 1772 and died in 1852. He was born in North Staffordshire on a farm. His father was a bit of a, a thug, really. He was a very abusive man. And uh, it often seems to be the case with these people in that generation. Just got on with their work and they drank and they swore, you know, got married and didn't really care for their children. But it was the mothers who brought up the children. And, and Hugh Bourne's mother realized that her son, there was something special about him. He was a deep thinker. But she couldn't answer her son's restlessness. And, and she, she went to her butcher. It, it's amazing. You kind of read this and suddenly it becomes flesh and bone. This isn't kind of boring stuff. She went to her butcher and while he was cutting some meat for her, she said to, her, she said to him, 
my son needs some good reading. Could you, next time I come, lend me some good books for him? Imagine asking that someone in, in the Asda bus butchers. <laughs> so the next time she went to the local butcher, there was, there was a pile of books wrapped up in, in newspaper, tied by a string, and there were four books. John Wesley's sermons, the letters of Fletcher of Medley, Richard Baxter, the call to the unconverted, and Joseph Aline, an alarm to the unconverted. Some butcher. <laughs> I know ministers who haven't even got those books on their shelves. And if they were there, they wouldn't read them anyway. What a butcher. He said to Mrs. Bourne, hopefully this will sort him out. And what is staggering is this, this young teenage boy on a North Staffordshire farm read his way into the kingdom of God. He said, I was reading a sermon on the Trinity <laughs> by John Wesley and I was converted. Listen to his He said, it must have been a bit of a woolly conversion. How about this? I believed in my heart. Grace descended and Jesus Christ manifested himself to me. My sins were taken away in an instant, and I was filled with all joy and peace in believing. I never knew or thought anyone could in this world have such a foretaste of heaven. Wow. I think he was converted. <laughs> what happens when you get converted outside the church? You know, you ask around. And uh, he thought of joining the Church of England. But someone said, oh, no, 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 no. Join the Methodists. Now, I have no evidence for this, but I have a good feeling that that man who said, join the Methodists, was one of my relatives. And so he didn't join the Church of England, and he joined the Methodists. <laughs> for 18 months, he did not pray in public. He was too self-conscious. He was shy. Don't forget, he's a young boy. All this is new to him. It's not kind of culture. It's all new to him. But he's excited by what he's hearing. People who are... There from the days of John Wesley, full of that enthusiasm, and he feels this is, this is too overpowering. But he starts to grow in his confidence. He was a carpenter by trade, and uh, he went to work in a place called Harris Head, which is still there by Malcock, went there just a couple of months ago. It's a small village. And, and in Harris Head, he had a cousin called Daniel Shoebotham. Shoebotham, your typical you know, uh, 18th, 19th century man. He was married. He was a heavy drinker. He was a swearer. He was a gambler. He was an expert poacher. This man was a million miles from the kingdom of God. And yet here is uh, Hugh Bourne, a carpenter, working in the village where his cousin is working. And he wants to tell him about the Lord Jesus. But he's nervous. And so he write, wrote out his testimony... And on Christmas Day, he knocked on his cousin's door and went to say Happy Christmas to him. And then said to him, I wonder if you'd read this for me. Can you believe it? This God-cursing man read the testimony of his cousin and was converted on the spot. Was that a move of the Spirit? And you can imagine, word went round Harry's head immediately, Shoebotham has become a Methodist. Now, now, these days, you know, that's okay. But in those days, that was very risky because the Methodists were the crazy gang. These people who were passionate and hot. And he's become a Methodist. And so Hugh Bourne and Daniel Shoebotham and two more, one was an old lady, used to meet 
on a weekly basis to pray. Just say, Lord, what you've done for us for, would you do for the rest of the village? And bit by bit, the church or their numbers began to swell and God began to move in their midst. By the way, whenever they prayed, their prayer meetings were no longer than 75 minutes. I found if you kind of... We think that all-night prayer meetings are really, really spiritual, don't we? They said, no, 75 minutes. Let's have some quality praying. And don't forget, we've got to get up early tomorrow to go to work. So let's put in a good quality shift and then go home. Interesting. And so they had these 75-minute prayer meetings once a week, and then we'll just get on with their duty. But they began to grow and grow. And Hugh Bourne later wrote, in our conversational way, we preached the gospel to all, good and bad, rough and smooth. People were obliged to hear. You say, was he a simple soul? No. When he went home after doing his job as a carpenter, he then taught himself Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, as one does. Sometimes we think that some of these early Methodists were kind of country bumpkins. They weren't. They were clever people. Just like Francis Asbury, who went from this country to America, who really was a John Wesson America, he did most of his learning on the back of a horse learning languages and, and reading very, very deep books. Uh, and I speak as a pastor, believe me, book reading among pastors is dying out. Say, so how do you know? I hear them preach. There ain't much there. So here's this man, he's, he's reading, he's studying, he's praying, he's getting involved in the local Methodist church. In his reading, he comes across something quite interesting. He reads of camp meetings over in America. Now, these days, we talk about reaching the unchurched. I don't feel comfortable with that expression at all, because having been a pastor for 31 years, you can be in church and unsaved. It's not reaching the unchurched. It's reaching the unsaved. And, and they're in the church and out of the church. But, but anyway, how about this? These camp meetings that were taking place in America took place on the frontiers of Kentucky and Tennessee. They were wild. Singing, praying, preaching, are you ready for this? I'm only telling you what's in history. Laughing. Falling over. People making fools of themselves. And Hugh read these and, and thought, I'd like something of that to come to my country. By the way, guess who started these camp meetings? Passing your seatbelts. Presbyterians. <laughs> If I can take H.L. Mencken out of context and slightly misquote him, Presbyterianism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. <laughs> Originally he said that of the Puritans, but uh, I couldn't say that of the Puritans. And so here were these wild camp meetings reaching people right out in the sticks and, and in spite of all the excesses, thought we're getting converted. And Hugh Bourne said, I'd love to see something like that come to our country. A respectable Methodist minister, a Wesleyan, went out to see all these camp meetings. He wrote this in his journal. I cannot contemplate without astonishment the great work God has performed in the United States. It is here that we see Methodism in its grandest form. In England... Methodism is like a river calmly gliding on. Here, it's a torrent rushing along and sweeping all away in its course. Hmm. 
So that's Shoeborn. Who is the other founder of Primitive Methodism in this country? A man called William Clowes. He was about eight years younger than Hugh Bourne. And uh, in his family history, he was born 1780 and died 1851, his family were related to the Wedgwoods. And uh, all of this took place around the Potteries. So here's a man who's related to the Wedgwoods. He goes to work at the age of 10 as a potter. He becomes a gifted potter. And then he becomes master potter. And in those days is earning as master potter 20 shillings a day. That's big money. What you do when you're unconverted with that kind of money? You drink it. It's the quickest way out of Stoke-on-Trent on a Saturday evening. Uh, and so this man became a, a very, very serious drinker. Because of his work in, in pottery, he finished up in Hull. And one evening, he was in the Dog and Duck in Hull, drinking away, when in through the door came the press gang. There was an almighty fight in the public house. He managed to get out through the back door and he ran as far as he could, scared stiff of suddenly his entire life being brought to an end and finishing up on a ship doing things he wouldn't want to do. By the way, when he ran away from Hull, he left debts of £70 £70 through drinking. He came back to Stoke-on-Trent and he heard about the Methodists. And the Methodists had their love feasts. And the only way into a love feast was with a ticket. You know, and uh, it's not too long ago I know a gentleman who just recently died. He was in a large Baptist church in London. It was his job to hand out communion tickets. Saying, you know, we have a closed table here. Not all and sundry come and gather. We want to know who's breaking bread with us. What kind of life you're living. So he was the ticket monitor. That's quite interesting. Paul would count that legalistic these days, but it was co-protecting the table. The Methodists had a ticket system of, of getting into a love feast. He borrowed one. He's unconverted. <laughs> so he borrows a ticket for a love feast. That shouldn't have been sent out in the first place. And why does he want to go to a love feast anyway when he's not saved? He went and got converted. That's like stealing a Bible, reading it, and getting saved, isn't it? <laughs> When he got converted, what was the first thing he did? He went back to Hull to pay his £70 debt. How interesting that when the Apostle Paul was converted, he went down a street called Straight. And when God saves a person, he then puts them on the straight road and says, now walk this road, my friend. And so he put his debts right, and then he came back and started to pray for his wife's conversion. And said, Lord, in your good time, if you've saved me, save her. She got saved. And then together began to open their homes, their homes, sorry, to share the gospel. On one occasion, he came home from work absolutely soaked as skin. He was drenched, but felt so exercised of the spirit to pray before he went upstairs to change that he fell on his knees on the stairs and began to call on God and did so for two hours. And such was the noise that was coming out of the house that a great crowd of people gathered around to find out what was going on in the Clouse's household. And when the door was open, people heard this man pleading for his neighbours and his neighbourhood. One man was converted and became a Methodist local preacher through that prayer. <coughs> he was, he was a, an eccentric. He was, he was very charismatic in personality. Hugh Bourne was very steady, very measured. A kind of... Uh, 
just a, a powerhouse for work. Hugh Bourne was, so William Clowes, who was called Billy to his friends, was, was totally different, uh, a very extravagant kind of man. And so here you have Hugh Bourne, who's been converted. Here you've got William Clowes converted. The both of the Methodist church, they haven't really connected, but God is moving in both their circles. Now let me tell you about these uh, camp meetings that eventually came from America to Britain. They weren't really the same as in America. We say, thank God for that. We had to wait for another 200 years for those to arrive with Toronto, <laughs> but that's another story. The prayer meeting that met on Harris Head once a week, you know, just 75 minutes prayer, it began to grow and grow and grow. And, and they said among themselves, wouldn't it be great to have more space and more time? So they said, well, why don't we set aside a day? We've got all the space in the world. Let's go on to Malkop. We've got all the time in the world. And so, on the 31st of May, 1807, I suppose technically speaking, that's when primitive Methodism really began, these Methodists, still part of the Methodist Church, went out onto Malkop. And by the way, Malkop, it's... Uh, if you drive down the M6, every time I, I go down the M6, I always look to see Malkop. Once I've seen it, I kind of go, oh, I've seen home. It's, it's an impressive kind of hill. It's 1,100 feet tall. So, so this meeting is growing on the top of Mao Kop in, in the Potteries. And, and they say, well, let's go outside and pray and preach and sing. And let's have our meeting. It lasted for 14 hours. Remember Dr. Lloyd-Jones saying on one occasion, I think I've shared this before, he said there were people in Westminster Chapel who'd come to church to go home. <laughs> you know that kind of thing? I could have been long this morning, Pastor. <laughs> Why has that got a problem? Well, I've got to go out for lunch. Well, you go out for lunch and we'll carry on. And there are people who come to church to go home. 14 hours, they were praising God, they were preaching, they were singing, they were testifying. How many gathered? 5,000 people. Wow. It was so successful, they had one the following month. It grew in numbers. Towards the end of August in that year, there was a big meeting at a place called Norton on the Moors, a big wake as they called it in those days. To put it in simple English, it was like John Bunyan's Vanity Fair. It was known for its drunkenness, its violence, its, its immorality. You know, many, many children were born out of that kind of wake. It was a, it was a pit. And Hubborn said, let's go there. And so they, they brought in wagons, put them all around the fair, not just one big place, and they had different people all around just sharing the gospel, singing and testifying right throughout the Norton Wakes Festival for three days. What is the Methodist Church going to do with all this? Here's conference down in London, sedate, trying to get the measure of things. Here are these people in the potteries alive in the Lord Jesus. That year, the Methodist Conference met in Liverpool. And on the agenda was, what do we do with these camp meetings on Malkop? Sounds like a church business meeting, doesn't it? <laughs> I quote from the conference minutes to get it exactly right. Question. What is the judgment of the Methodist Conference concerning what are called camp meetings? Answer, after a long debate, it is our judgment 
that even supposing such meetings to be allowable in America, they are highly improper in England, and likely to be productive of considerable mischief, and we disclaim all connection with them. It was a move of the spirit. And yet the Methodist Church didn't recognize it. But you know, I, I find that quite sobering because many of us pray for revival, and I sometimes wonder if revival came, whether we'd actually recognize it, would even oppose it. There were people praying for the move of the Spirit in Wales in the 1904 revival and missed it. And here are, here are people who, who worked with John Wesley. And his successors are doing the same thing on Malkop, and they oppose him. And they said, anyone who gets involved in these camp meetings will be excommunicated from the Methodist Church. Now what is interesting is this. This is exactly what John Wesley faced with the Church of England. He was criticized for, for going into the open air. And again, I quote exactly from John Wesley. He put a question down. Have we not used it too sparingly that he's going into the open air? Answer, it seems we have. Because our call is to save that which is lost. And the lost will never come looking for us. We must go looking for them. Number two, because we are particularly called to go into the highways and hedges, which no one else is doing. And then thirdly, a very clever argument, he says, oh, by the way, all these folk can't fit into our chapels anyway, they're so small. So to save the embarrassment of a building program, let's forget the building, and let's just go out and speak the gospel to them. And so John Wesley was criticized for going out into the open air, and his children did the very same thing to those who are really the spiritual successors of John Wesley. And it's what you find in Scripture that here's a man, when he's alive, you stone him. And then when he's dead, you put up a stone monument. What a great man he was. On the 27th of June, 1808, Hugh Bourne received a letter from the Methodist Church to say, you are no longer a Methodist. We wash our hands of you. Isn't that amazing? William Clowes, he likewise received a letter not at the same time, a little later, saying, we disassociate ourselves from you. You are no longer a Methodist. These men were not guilty of immorality, putting their hand in the till, slandering anybody. Their only crime was going out onto the moors of Malkup, offering men Christ. There was a well-known figure those days, in those days called James Steele. He'd been a Methodist for 24 years. And he'd held many offices within the Methodist Church. And uh, in 1811, April 1811, he was the Sunday school superintendent of a large Methodist Sunday school. On a Sunday, the 16th of April, he was halfway through a Sunday school lesson when an official came from the Methodist Conference and said, Excuse me, Mr. Steele, we dismissed you from the Methodist Church. We'll finish the lesson. You think, is this the church I'm reading of? Are these my brothers and sisters in Christ? And, and all of this is because people inside the church could not cope with the new life, the new wine of the gospel that was kind of bubbling there in the potteries. And by the way, they said to Hugh Bourne and William Clowes, and all these folk you've led to Christ, we don't want them either. You look after them. And so here is Hugh Bourne and William Clowes with, with, with believers that they've led to Christ saying, 
I'm really, really sorry. We're outside the church now. What introduction is that to Christianity? What do we do with them? So these men had no other option but to get together. At first, they were two separate groups. The Methodist camp connection and, and, and those who were with William Clowes, who were called the Clausites. Uh, and then eventually they came together and they formed themselves on the 13th of February, 1812, as the Primitive Methodists. Now let me just tell you in, uh, in closing, don't get too excited. <laughs> let me just tell you eight things. <laughs> Some are long, some are very, very short. Let me just tell you eight simple things about the primitive Methodists that I trust you'll find helpful and that we can learn from. The first is their growth. If you want to understand the growth of the primitive Methodist church, you have to follow the River Trent. I don't know why, but it's as if the Spirit flowed following the River Trent. So down from Malcop, through Stoke, through Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire, uh, Lincolnshire, finishing up in Hull. And Hull became a massive, massive primitive Methodist centre. Hugh Bourne never married, had no car, had a horse, but preferred to walk. Most weekends he walked 35 miles and preached five times. Now I'm a pastor, and I've been a pastor for 31 years. You're evangelists, and you can speak about evangelists, but I'll speak about pastors, if that's okay. I know pastors who are in team ministry, who preach once a fortnight, and even that is stressful. And it's, pray for me, I've got a message to prepare. Really? And do lots of coffee drinking in the name of pastoral work. No, it's coffee drinking. Lots of socializing, networking. What on earth is networking? <laughs> And, and, and their members are slogging themselves 37, 40 hours a week for them to maintain that kind of lifestyle. And it's a shame to the name of Christ. And, and here's a man walking throughout the week trying to sort out these new believers and on Saturday and Sunday walking 35 miles preaching five times and then back again for Monday morning. What an incredible man he was. When William Clowes eventually went to Hull to make that his spiritual centre, in the first four months of being in Hull, he personally led, are you ready for this, 400 people to the Lord. Four years later, he wrote this in his journal. The ground was all broken up between Hull and Carlisle. Before you go to bed, you go to your car and get your map out. You look at Hull, look at Carlisle, and say, how did he do it? He walked it. And he went on to say in his journal that I could stop every night in a different place where different people had come to the Lord and sleep there for the night and move on to another place the night after. Because in every one of those places, people had come to Christ and a church had been formed. In seven years, they had 12,000 members and 21 circuits. In 20 years, they had 60,000 members. From 1831 to 1841, they built 779 chapels. After 30 years, they had 1,219 chapels, 72,000 members, 495 evangelists, 
and six, that's travelling evangelists, and 6,860 stationary evangelists. From 1841 to 1851, they built 940 chapels, and between 1820 and 1830, they grew at a rate of 357%. Oh, by the way, on the 6th of January, 1850, it was snowing, and a 16-year-old boy could not make it to his usual chapel, so he went to a primitive Methodist chapel. And who was that man? <laughs> C.H. Spurgeon. And he was converted. What I find very interesting is that when Spurgeon became great, three primitive Methodist preachers all claimed that they were the one who led him to Christ. <laughs> It was me. No, it was. I'm sure it was me. Yeah. Mm. Human nature. I mean, even when Saul becomes a Christian, we take the glory. I prayed for you. <laughs> or it was your prayer. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> what incredible men they were. I said that when Hugh Bourne died, 105,000 primitive Methodists. Wesley left behind 72,000 Methodists. And yet, we never hear of these men. In 1907, the Primitive Methodists celebrated their centenary. And and during the week, 100,000 Primitive Methodists gathered on Mount Cup. 100,000 to praise God and thank Him for 100 years of a soul-saving ministry. But the rot had already set in. And they were kind of raveling at a rapid rate. In 1932, they then joined up with the Wesleyans, so they had been separated for about 130 years. They now came together. And look at the state of Methodism today. Yet, when they joined up in 1932, they had 220,000 members. It would have been 221, but it was my grandfather who left. (laughs) They had 1,131 ministers, 12,896 local preachers, 4,356 chapels, 4,007 Sunday schools, 377,392 Sunday school scholars, 52,457 teachers, and 11,429 class leaders in 100 years. And William Clowes and James Bourne both insisted they did not grow through sheep stealing. They said, these have not come to the Methodist church. I don't believe them totally enough, because there were some disillusioned Methodists. But the point they're trying to make is this. We didn't go around just making an Adullam's cave. Most of our converts were converts that we personally had led to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just we, but also our, our friends who were working with us. So they grew. And uh, very, very powerful indeed. Secondly, the women. I'm not commenting on this. I'm just telling you what happened in terms of their practice. They employed women preachers and evangelists. And in 1820, so seven years after they started, 20% of their preachers were women. They were never ministers. The primitive Methodists never had female ministers. But they believed quite strongly that God could use women primarily to reach women and to release women to do that but also they spoke to men. And, and some wonderful Dickensian names. Mary Porteous, Jane Brown, Elizabeth Bultitude. 
Miss Parrot. For me, my favourite story is, uh, is Mary Dunnell. I say Hugh Boy never married. I think perhaps he was slightly misled with his judgment here. He really liked Mary Dunnell. And uh, he recommended to the primitive Methodist connection she would be good to go out to Derby as an evangelist. And so Mary Dunnell went to Derby as the leader of the primitive Methodist cause there until they discovered that she was married to three different men at the same time. <laughs> and none of the husbands knew of the other husbands. So Hugh Bowen admitted, I think we've made a mistake. And, they didn't. <laughs> and I find it so refreshing that, that men who were moving in the things of God sometimes got it wrong. I know it's a big wrong, but it's quite reassuring, isn't it? Thirdly, children... Primitive Methodism was an adult movement. I say this carefully again. Most churches, their evangelism is a youth-driven policy. And so, okay, someone gets converted at seven or eight. That's absolutely wonderful. How long before they can become an active, involved member of the local church, praying with responsibility and being able to give financially? Well, they may survive to a university and you've lost them. They didn't have that kind of problem in those days, but the primitive Methodists said, no, we go for adults first. And if we get mothers and fathers, the children will come with them. And I think, if I'm allowed to say this, one of the reasons why we have such a poverty of church growth in our country is that it is so youth-driven. Some people say, it's because you've got no children. This has been told me quite often. No, no, no. When I read scripture and see what has gone on in church history, you go for the adults. Explain the clear gospel. The children will then come with it. But they were passionate about reaching children. They were passionate. And uh, in 1851, I don't know if you know about this, but there was a big, big census taken place. It took place in 1851. Assessing the spiritual state of Britain. And I have to say, as a non-conformist, it's tragic reading because since 1851, the non-conformist church has gone down every year. It's like a toilet roll, isn't it? At first, you don't see it. But you get near to the end, it gets faster and faster and faster. And what we're now seeing is the unraveling towards the end. This has been going on since 1851. We've had no real years of success. It's just a general going down and down and down. And by and large, and I say this carefully, generally speaking, the non-conformist church has been that which has reached out most to the working class of our country. And as that dies... So does our grip on grassroots evangelism. If you don't believe me, you come and live in the north of England. It's a million miles removed from the south of England. I'm not saying that everyone in the north is working class and those down the south are very middle. That's not what I'm saying. But it's a different kind of world. In 1851, there were around 32 million people in our country. 2,600,000 of those were children and three quarters of those were registered with non-conformist chapels. That's where it's gone wrong, isn't it? And I appreciate it. Let's grab hold of the youth. I understand that. Almost seems the door is closed. But how amazing. In 1851, three quarters of the young people in this country had contact with the Christian church and most with the non-conformist church. 
And so the primitive Methodists were very passionate about reaching children, but first of all, let's get their parents. And by the way, Hugh Bourne was a, was a very gifted child evangelist. Read some of his sermons. Wouldn't get away with them today. A day trip to heaven. Now, would you like to go? <laughs> Just not yet. I've got my tea. <laughs> but fascinating stuff. The fourth thing is Mel Cop. You must go to Mel Cop. Uh, what is amazing is there's a stone there which, which marks where the Holy Spirit moved in great power and in great might. It mentions William Clowes and Hugh Bourne. And uh, I, was, I was there a couple of months ago, and from the top of Mau Cop, you can actually see Liverpool and the Anglican Cathedral. That's, that's, the view is absolutely splendid. You may be able to see Paddy's wigwam from there, but I, I averted my eyes. <laughs> Just wanted to see the Protestant one. Yes. But, but to the primitive Methodists, Mau Cop was like Jerusalem to the Jews who were living in exile. And uh, if you look at the hymnology of the primitive Methodists, they were always singing about the mountain. Oh, escape to yonder mountain. What mountain? Mau Cop? Now begin to watch and pray. Christ invites you to the fountain. Come and wash your sins away. Come to the mountain. And by the way, the primitive Methodists were great singers. I have a CD of some primitive Methodist hymns. Their tunes are rich. You know, most modern songs, you don't have to know the tune. You just kind of just bounce your way through the You get there in the end. You can't do that with a primitive method tune. You either know the tune or you don't. And there's, there's, they sang their theology. And uh, they sang the hymns of, of John Wesley, but also the hymns of their own hymn writers. There's a lovely hymn, Thou Shepherd of Israel and Mine, you may know it. Thou joy and desire of my heart, for closer communion I pine. I long to reside where thou art. They have a wonderful tune called Shepherd. Oh, it's passionate. Show me the happiest place, the place of thy people's abode, where saints in an ecstasy gaze and hang on a crucified God. That's theology, isn't it? That's better than do you want to? Do you want to praise? No, hang on a crucified God saying, he's my saviour. And they sang it. And, and afterwards I've got to play the tune Shepherd and you'll hear some primitive Methodist singing. What are their characteristics? Number five. Four. They met... <laughs> I've been influenced by the... No, I've got four points to the fifth point. I'm like a Puritan. They, they met, they met evangel evangelical nominalism head on. They had no room for passengers. They were a life-saving church. We're in here to glorify God and save souls. And when Hugh Bourne died, 10% of his, his members were local preachers. And what is interesting, by the way, which goes back to my grandfather, the Westerns were very autocratic, very clergy-orientated. When the primitive Methodists had their annual conference, for every minister who went, he had to bring with him two people from the congregation, lay people. Now, I don't like the expression clergy and lay, but, but primitive Methodism was run by the people for the people. Not some clergymen in offices making decisions for people on the ground, which often goes on in denominations. No, no. 
these are people who are working, doing it, making the decisions. So they were always run by, by lay people who met people in the street head on. So they, they, they were very passionate about that. Second, they, they were great prayers. When they used to meet at their camp meetings and pull up their wagons and have a preacher, behind every wagon there was a prayer tent. And they said to their people, while he's preaching, you get in there praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, short sermons. I think they gave long lectures, but short sermons. <laughs> Thirdly, there were, there were big fasters. Hugh Bourne and uh, William Clowes believed in fasting. Saying, Lord, we love our food, but we're going to put this on one side today to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that these folk may get saved. Big prayers, big fasters. Very, very few passengers. And by the way, they lived through, during very difficult days. If you know anything about the history of that period, you know, we were at war with France for 20 years. There was conflict between us and America for three years. Then there was the cholera epidemic wiping out thousands in the country. And while all this was going on, they were still preaching Christ. Number six, conflict. Hugh Bourne spoke of a day in his life in 1804, December 1804, when he said, the Holy Spirit came down upon me. He used expressions in his book of a burning away of the dross, a spirit of burning, I obtained the blessing. You may call it whatever you want to, but it seems to me from having read his biography and studied them for over 12 months, that this man was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He knew a work of the Spirit in his life. It doesn't mean that he was perfect, but he knew an unction of God upon him, as did William Clowes. And, and yet, they were totally, totally different from each other. Totally different from each other. And what I find astounding and, and, and yet encouraging, even though both men knew a touch of the Holy Spirit on their lives, they were far from sanctified. Now, I timed Jonathan this afternoon. He spoke for about 45 minutes. At one of their public meetings, Hugh Bourne and William Clowes fell out. And Hugh Bourne stood up for two hours <laughs> and rubbished William Clowes. Two hours. Hugh Bourne was totally teetotal, but William Clowes wasn't. He didn't mind an odd drink now and then. And so Hugh Bourne called him, this man's a drunken lad. And he rubbished him for two hours. Now, you have an argument with your wife for two hours. <laughs> After five minutes, I've run out of all my vocabulary. <laughs> two hours. I say to myself, how amazing that these men are right in the heart of what God is doing, know a touch of the Holy Spirit, and yet still need more of God's grace. I, I find that deeply worrying, but at one level, greatly encouraging. It reminds me that God uses fallen people. Seventhly, Lorenzo Dow. You must hear about Lorenzo Dow. Who was Lorenzo Dow? Well, with a name like that, he certainly wasn't English. He was American. 
Lorenzo Dow was an American Methodist who fell out with everybody. It says he made more enemies than friends. And how about this? Whenever he preached, he always preached with his back against an open door. (laughs) I know the feeling. (laughs) He was tall. He was fragile. He had a heavily pockmarked face. He had stooped shoulders, black hair. Uh, he, looks, he looks rather anemic. I've seen pictures of him. He, his hair went from the top of his head right down to the bottom of his back. The Methodist Church in America didn't like him, and they tried to clamp him, and he said, you're not telling me what to do. And so he came to Ireland, and then from Ireland came to England. He was the right man at the right time. Just when the camp meetings were starting here in England, Lorenzo Dow came, who'd been to the camp meetings in America. And he was the right man to preach. I think the last time I was here, I said, I've come to realize that God seems to bless all the wrong kind of people. (laughs) People that I would never entertain in a million years, he uses. And here's a man, he's, he's cranky, he's funny, he's a maverick. And yet God used him. On one occasion, he stood up to preach. And after he'd preached on Malkop, 34 people professed faith in Christ. And he always began his sermons in the same way. Almost like Dr. Lloyd Jones. I should like to call your attention too. (laughs) Every sermon he began by going like this. Hark. (laughs) I hear God speaking. And then he would start. And while he was a strange man, and and they didn't always buy into all that Lorenzo Dow was was committed to. He was the right man at the right time. He was a catalyst and got the whole thing going. And then he disappeared back to America. Lorenzo Dow. And finally, persecution. Some of the early primitive Methodists suffered more violence than the early Methodists suffered. They were pelted with mud, stone, rotten eggs, vegetables, human excrement. Vicars arranged for church bells to be rung during the open air services. One vicar paid for the local fire engine to be turned and drenched William Lockwood as he prepared to preach at Newark. Jeremiah Gilbert, one of the Methodist local preachers of the Primitive Methodist, was imprisoned on no less than 15 occasions. This is Christian England, by the way. Thomas Russell known as the Apostle of Berkshire, was once sent to prison for three months simply for preaching the gospel. Listen to this excerpt on the life of Thomas Russell. One Sunday morning in April 1832, Russell went to Wantage and attempted to preach in the marketplace. There he was pelted with stones, eggs, mud and filth. When he left, he had to wash his clothes by the side of the canal. Putting them on wet, he went to Farringdon, where similar treatment awaited him. Coming to a pool of water outside the town, he washed his clothes a second time. He walked five miles farther to Shrivenham, where he had a violent reception. At another brook, he cleansed himself a third time and proceeded to another village where he preached in peace, except that a stone was thrown at him, which cut his lip. After that, he walked six miles to Lambourne to rest for the night. He'd been on foot 18 hours, had walked 35 miles, had preached four times, had gone through an amount of suffering such as only a strong man could have endured. In spite of the mobs, Mr. Russell persevered, returning again and again. At the end of three years, 
He enrolled as new members of the Primitive Methodist Connection on that very ground, no fewer than 1,280 members. Let me give you a story, and then I'll conclude it. One of the early Primitive Methodist preachers was a man called John Benton of Cannock. And he was a coal miner, but he wasn't very educated. And one Wesleyan Methodist, hearing this Primitive Methodist preach John Benton, was not only appalled at his theology, but at his grammar. <laughs> and he went over to him after his sermon and said, Sir, you are bringing a scandal on the cause of Christ. You have no learning, and what's more, you don't even understand grammar. Sometime later, John Benton was preaching in the open air on It Is Finished. He was only halfway through the sermon when the Spirit of God fell and people were crying out for mercy. Who was at the back of the crowd? This clever Wesleyan man who corrected him. And so after John Benton had led these people to the Lord, he worked his way through the crowd to this Methodist preacher and said, Do you observe? That's what I call grammar. Where would the Church of England have been if it had embraced John Wesley? And where would the Methodist Church have been if it embraced Hugh Bourne and William Klaus? I started by telling you about my grandfather. Let me tell you how he found his wife. My grandfather got married, and then his wife became pregnant, and my father was born. And then ten days after my father was born, his wife died. And so here's my grandfather, a worker on the railway with a ten-day-old boy. What does he do? Well, it just so happened that the in-laws lived next door but one. And so my father was passed to the in-laws who brought him up. Well, my grandfather went back to work. Every year, Greenfield Methodist or Primitive Methodist Chapel in Blackburn had a pantomime. And while my grandfather was rehearsing for that year's pantomime, he cast eyes on a young girl who was also rehearsing. He fell in love, he proposed, and they married. the upper room had been replaced with the pantomime in just over a hundred years. And when that pantomime production was put on, earth tremors were felt at Anglesea Brook and in Hull General Cemetery where Hugh Bourne and William Clowes are respectively buried. And both men said in unison, did we go through all of this that our successors may offer to the next generation nothing but babes in the wood. And that's a primitive Methodist. Tomorrow, it will be shorter. We'll look at the Bible Christians. Thank you for listening.